everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Discovery. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm delighted to bring our teaching for this morning. This teaching is anchored in Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verses 12. Today it's anchored in verses 6 and 7, which says, I, the Lord, did not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord God Almighty. Getting ready for this week, I was um, thinking a lot about weddings. I think if, if there's a good metaphor with which to see the book of Malachi, I think it's like, like marriage counseling. Uh, you, have, you have two people, they've made this agreement. Things haven't been going very well, and so this is the discussion that ensues of, hey, how does all of this work out? And it then had me remi- reminded of some of the fun weddings that I've been to lately. I love when I get to do premarital counseling with folks um, or when I get to perform a wedding where the couple chooses to write their own vows. It's my favorite because you really, it, you really get to see what's their heart for this. Why are they getting involved? What's the promise that they make? It's, it's one of my most delightful things. And some of them get really creative. Here's some of the vows that I've heard over the years. I promise to love you through Ikea, be it during the buying or assembly of furniture procured therein. <laughs> that they're in it, you guys. They're really in it. <clears throat> I, promise, I promise to refill the toilet paper that you very likely will not refill. I mean, how hard is that to do? That was the whole thing. I promise I will stop bringing up the argument that the two of us had a few years ago in order to make sure that you don't forget about it. <laughs> I, like, I like that one. Uh, I promise to always get rid of the spiders, even though I'm more scared than you. That's love. There's some real love going on there. Now that we've gotten skinny for this wedding, let's get real fat together for the rest of our lives. (laughs) I like that one. And my personal favorite, a pair of penguins mate for life across hundreds of miles of tundra. The female penguin travels to bring food to the male as he watches the egg for a month of sub-zero temperatures. As your husband, I promise to never ask you to do anything like that. <laughs> I like that. When, when you're getting married, you just have such a small idea of what it is that you're getting yourself into. You're going to spend the rest of your life learning what it is that you've done, <laughs> what you've committed to. Often it will call for moments of, how shall we put this, heated discussion, uh, judicious disagreement, maybe. Two people for their lives reminding each other what they committed to. They're both coming to the table with this vision of what they've always had for this relationship. And oftentimes, in this situation, it's a grievance about how reality and expectation are just not lining up. Now, for those who are married and for those who are not, I want to be super clear. I think this idea, this microcosm of marriage exposes something that's a dynamic between all of us and God, whether you're married or not. I also want to be really clear because I think sometimes in religious culture, particularly Christian culture, marriage or being married can be held as like this. That's the goal for all of us. 
And I just, I don't want to portray that here. That's not the goal. But I do want to look at this dynamic of how does marriage begin to show us something about all of us and our relationship with God, both individually and corporately. In, we're in this book of Malachi, which I, I love. We, we uh, don't touch the minor prophets very often here at Discovery, and it's just a delight to just study a text and let it speak for himself. Things aren't going well in this book between the people and God, and if you could put a metaphor on it, I think we've got an insight into a, in a marriage counseling session here. Both parties are really struggling to understand the other and what's going on. Now, the context of this book, there's these people, it's the nation of Israel. They've been sent into exile in the, in the nation of Persia. They've now been sent back to their hometown of Jerusalem. Things maybe now are finally getting back on track to how they were supposed to be. But the problem is this, they've rebuilt the temple, which seems like that's a really good move. But God started out the book of Malachi saying, you've rebuilt this temple, you're bringing these sacrifices back to me. You're trying to follow this plan that I've laid out. Man, the sacrifices that you're bringing, the animals that you're bringing, like they're just, they're sick, they're broken. It's like you, you kind of like looked at what you had to choose from and you chose the worst one and that's what you brought. And that's the opposite of what he had asked for way back at the beginning of all this stuff. We're about to head into some verses that will likely make up the bulk of all the sermons that you've heard on the book of Malachi, if you've ever heard one. And I think you would be wise to begin asking the question, is God, or even worse, the church, just a money-hungry machine? There's a lot about finances that's going to come up in these next couple verses. Why is finance such a big deal in Scripture? It's one of Jesus' favorite topics that he loved to talk about. What about finance? And again, it's part of why I love this idea of marriage counseling. How often does finance come up in marriage counseling? Finance exposes the heart. What is going on here? Is this passage about money or is this about something so much more? And just to totally poison the well right out of the gate, I want to posit this is not about money. This is a conversation we're hearing between God and his people where he's saying, I care about justice. Will you care about it with me? So if you could sum up the book of Malachi in one word, it would be the word remember. Undoubtedly, it shows up over and over again. And God is simply repeating this invitation for his people to remember their wedding vows. Remember, remember. The thing that their whole relationship had been centered around, remember. It was the law. It was the whole first chunk of this story. He's saying, do you remember where it started? Do you remember what we had written down together? We started this relationship with an end goal in mind. And one thing that may be unique to our ears is that in our culture, oftentimes the word remember is more of like a a mental exercise. Like it invokes a memory. But in this context, the word remember is so much more robust than that. For those, as we were going through our last series that chose to memorize the Ten Commandments, there were a handful of things for me that really stuck out, but one of them was the command, remember the Sabbath day by, for those of you that memorized it, by keeping it holy. To say remember the Sabbath day, like, okay, great, like Saturdays or Sundays, whatever I'm going to do, like, I will, I will hold that as a Sabbath day. I remember that. But God is saying, if you're going to remember the Sabbath day, 
did you keep it holy? How was your follow-through on that swing? Did you do it? Was there an action that was attached to that? Remembering for God is not just a memory. It involves your whole person. This is why studying the Old Testament, these, this initial vow with God is so important. And as we get into our verses for today, God is really just saying, remember what our relationship was supposed to look like as we're going through marriage counseling here? Remember how this was supposed to go. And there's three parts that we're going to hit today. Let's read our first part together. These are the first few verses, Malachi chapter 2, 17 through 3, 5. It says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, the vows, whom you desire will come, says the Lord God Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, and those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of, of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty." As we get into it today, there's a lot going on in just those few verses. But I think if we could boil it down, it really begins with a question, these verses. Where is justice? And God has a really immediate answer, which I love because it just takes so much of the tension around the question for me out. Where is justice? And his first response, I'm going to send my messenger who's going to prepare the way for me to come. Where's justice? I'm coming. Great. That's all I needed. That's all I wanted to know. And I think most of the time it's because I believe that God is the one who brings justice. I think that's true. How does that thought sit with you? Who brings justice? I'm really content if that answer is God, period. That's it. And we actually don't need the rest of the verses for today. That sounds awesome. But that's actually not the full statement that he's making here. If we dig into this a little bit more, I think, too, it, it, he really starts to bring out this idea of what we might see as punishment. He's got these ideas of trial, this image of metal being put in and being refined, or a piece of clothing being cleaned with a launderer's soap. I think we may hear this as, I'm going to burn the justice, the injustice out of you. And I want to remind us that as we're talking about God's justice, to consider it as a punitive kind of justice, that what he's really excited about is the punishment that's involved, it's actually not what's going on here. God's kind of justice fundamentally means restoring what is right, not punishing what is wrong. 
So with that in mind, it helps us to understand exactly what it is that God's talking about here. He's really saying, you already have what you need to be who you truly are. And this is where I think as readers of Scripture, it gets fun for us today. That is true of you right now. You already have all you need to be who you truly are. God isn't asking you to become something you're not or to try harder to add to your spiritual prowess. A crucible furnace where they would put this metal, it burns away stuff that's not real from the real stuff that's already there. When you're cleaning clothes with a launderer's soap, you're taking off stuff that doesn't belong to reveal the only thing that belonged in the first place. It's a big deal to have the starting blocks of this thing be there's goodness here. It's not a throw it away and now we're going to try and do something new. In your soul, who you are as a human being, when God looks at you, it's with the heart of a father who smiles and says, man, there's some things, there's some things there. You've got everything you need to be the fullest and best and truest version of who I created you to be. Let's start working. That's cool. And again, with all of this in mind, where is justice? God says, I'm coming. I'll bring it. Here's how this is going to go. I'm going to clean things up. All the impurities, everything that's dirty, we're going to take care of it. It would be really great if there was just a period there. But he keeps going. So in this first part of our verses today, if we could sum it up like this, Part one is, where is justice? I'm coming to restore what is good. But it really leads us to our second part of today. Where is justice? And that question is returned with the line, return to me. Here are these verses again. Malachi 3, 6 and 7. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord God Almighty. Part two is really this question, this invitation that God's offering back. Where is justice? I'm coming. Dot, dot, dot. But return to me. There's more going on here. Now, to paint a little bit of the picture of what's happened in this marriage relationship so far. As they got married, as we get through the book of Exodus, God draws these people out into the wilderness. He offers, if you've been here for the last couple months, this, these wedding vows, this ketubah. He says, I want to do life with you. I want to have this partnership in what I want to do in the world around us. So he offers these commandments, in particular, these 10 commandments, and says, these are my vows. This is the life that I want to lead together. And the whole setup is just like any other marriage. Are you in? And Israel wants to be in. They do their very best. And in God's brilliance, man, he just sets things up where if things go awry, I got it. I, I will take this covenant. I've got this vow for the both of us. But as their relationship continues on, we get to a period in history for Israel, what we call the pre-exilic time, which sounds great. Like pre-exile, though, is actually not that awesome. Israel has not been functioning as the partner that God, God designed and God invited. And he keeps sending these prophets over and over again to say, you guys, it's not going very well. Like this is marriage counseling 1.0. Things aren't going well. 
Can we get back to these vows? This is the type of life that we need to lead together. And Israel just can't, they can't, they can't figure out how to do that. And so then we go into this period of exile. They begin facing these natural consequences of, man, if God is the author of life and of everything that is good, and if they're saying no to that, then the only type of life that is left is a life that is not good. It's not authored by the one who knows how it works. So they live out these natural consequences in exile, and then they come, they come back where we're getting this book of Malachi. They come back from Babylon. They come back from Persia. They get to come back home, back to really look at these vows again with their partner. And in this post-exile, in this returning, they're still just not seeking justice. The, the list of things that God talks about, adulterers, perjurers, but then he gets really particular against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. This is God's concern in this round of marriage counseling. You've come back home. We're trying to do this life together. But man, this is really what I care about, and it just feels like you're not there. It's interesting that that's where he's going to draw their attention. And these verses, particularly verse 7, if you want to know what this chunk of Scripture is about, it hinges on that verse. Return to me, and I will return to you. Return is like that word remember. It's not just an idea. To return is an action. We serve a God who cares deeply for our world, for our bodies, for our experiences. He doesn't just want a spiritual life that's like in the head or in the heart. He's deeply integrated. Our experience of God is highly incarnated in our life. When he says remember or return, he's saying it's going to exist here. Returning invites us to do something to change something about how we're living. It's not an adding on. It's not becoming more than what we are. It's returning to something central that's always been there. So, this is part two. And if we could sum up where we've been so far, Malachi 2 and 3, we begin with this question, where is justice? And God says, I'm coming to restore what is good. Dot, dot, dot. Will you return to our partnership and do it with me? And that leads us to our last part. Where is justice? And God's going to say, well, for example, what about tithing? Here we go. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7b through, the, through 12. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. 
I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. If you've ever heard a sermon on the book of Malachi, it's probably these verses. Uh, It's probably tied to a capital campaign or a church whose finances aren't going very well at the moment. And that's good. That's good and true. These are good verses for that. And today I'm happy to tell you that while we're not necessarily on easy street here, today we're not starting a capital campaign. Today is not some big ask for your finances. We're looking to drill down to the heart of what God's getting at here. This is not about money. This is about justice. God says, I want to partner with you on this. For example, tithing. You may or may not be familiar with this idea, so here's just a quick, here's what tithing is. It was started way, way, way back, and the idea was it's an agrarian culture. So whether you're growing crops or whether you're raising livestock, in the spring, the first 10% of whatever you yield, that's what you bring to God. The first 10%. Now, this is really funny and totally fascinating to think through. If you're growing crops for the year, to know what 10% is assumes that you know what 100% is going to be. But if you're giving the first 10%, you're doing your best to to think through it. If you're going to do this well, you're looking at all of your land or all of your livestock going in the best prime circumstances, here's where I think we'll be by fall. So 10% therefore means this much. Man, there's just so much risk involved in that though. It it takes guts. I would way rather it say tithe the last 10%. After you have an idea of everything that you have, then set it aside. There's such a security in that. I know I'll have my 90% and I know that that's secure. Think through too, in an agricultural culture, If you give the first 10%, you have no idea if you're growing crops, if there's some plague that's going to come, some blight that's going to take out the last 90%. If I'm giving you the first 10%, that's the first bit of security that I've got for this coming year. What are you asking for with the first? One thing that's really interesting about tithes is that nearly every Middle Eastern culture did this. This was not an idea that was unique to Israel. Everybody did it, but there was one very crucial distinction. When you brought it in any other culture, you would bring it to the king and to the palace. And it really drove this idea of taxes. (laughs) This is what the king needs to keep the, the world running, but it really helps the royal family. The rich get richer in this kind of a typical setting. So it should put us on our heels a little bit to go, wait, Israel's in on this too. Like God's people, is this what God wanted? Because he seems pretty passionate about it here in Malachi. And the answer is, yeah, he's real keen on this, but it functions a little bit differently. If you're Israel, instead of these tithes going to the king and to the palace, in Israel, these tithes go to the, the priests and the temple. And the money wasn't just for the priests so that they could, you know, have what they needed to get by and to like keep upkeep on the temple. It wasn't just taxes that way. Most of these tithes were given so that they could be redistributed by the priests to take care of the poor and the sick and the needy. 
So as where every other culture around was going, hey, bring your tithes so that the rich can get richer. In Israel, the idea is bring your tithes so that we can take care of everybody. The heart of this really is, do you need help? Do you need mercy? We've got you covered. Or maybe more particularly, God's got you covered and we're just, we're with him. At the base of this kind of a society was a partnership, a trust between people and God. In verses 10 through 12, he talks about this idea of bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates. Verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields, and they will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. God's saying, look, we're going to feed everybody, including you. Where does your sustenance come from? Who provides for you in your life? And if you're a good American, that answer is me. If you're somebody who looks into the heart of God and you're invited to answer the question, who provides for you, it is a gutsy response to say, God, and to really believe it. Man, I am so personally convicted by that. Is God's test me here? Test my response, he says. Is, is he saying this because he's going to do something extra for them? Or is God just saying, look, this is a natural consequence for living the way that I've invited you to live. When you as a community and as a culture, when you partner with me, everybody gets taken care of. Not just the folks who need financial help. i take care of all of you. This is the dynamic of the relationship that we're supposed to have. Remember with your actions. Remember with your body. Remember with your resources. This is not a mental exercise. This is intensely practical. Remember the vows that we said together. To withhold your 10% if you're Jewish would be like saying, I don't want or I don't believe in this kind of a community or the reasoning behind it. Or even worse, to withhold is to say, I know better. Verse 8 speaks to this idea of robbing God. It's really driving this idea that giving a tithe is not just holding back resources that are yours, but it's better understood as taking something that never belonged to you. I was doing some research for this week, and there was a commentary that I will not tell you the name of, but it said this in, as it was walking through these passages. Tithing is being fiscally responsible before God. That's kind of true. My heart just sank, though. Because, man, it's just so much more than that. I reject this thought, at least of being fully true. Tithing is not just being fiscally responsible before God. Tithing is a response of justice. It's coming to the table of God and saying, I'm in. I want to join you in what you want to do. God is saying, look, I'm not asking you for your money. I'm asking you again for your partnership. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust that the person on the receiving end of this is not just the poor and the marginalized, but that you also benefit from this. 
Let's partner in creating a just society, something that takes care of every single person. Let's create the type of a partnership where you get to be dazzled and surprised by how I show up and provide for you. There may be days where you go hungry. There may be days where it's put to the test. Test me in this. I've got us. I think Malachi holds an understanding of tithing in the same way that Brian Stevenson taps into in his book called Just Mercy. Tithing is not simply fiscal responsibility before God. It's more like an act of justice. Here's how Stevenson says it. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. And man, this just brings it home so hard for us. We all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. I think this is the heart of what Malachi and God are talking about. I think in what God is saying as he's looking at these people going, hey, you've come back from exile. You're back in this temple that you rebuilt. We're trying to get this sacrifice thing down. You guys just don't get it, though. I'm not looking for fiscal responsibility. I'm not looking for cash flow. I'm not looking to get richer. I want you to partner with me because there's people that are hurting. I want you to partner with me because there's injustice in the world and we all suffer when there is injustice. And he just as an example just turns and he holds up finances and he says, this is just one way. There's so many other ways. If you want to participate in this with me, where's your heart over here? Are you the one providing justice? Are you the one providing finances for yourself? Or does all of that flow from me? Is that mine to begin with, regardless of how much or little you have? St. Ambrose would say it this way in his teaching. You are not making a gift of your possession to a poor person. You are handing over to him what is his. As we get through Malachi, these verses for today, here's what we've learned. We're at, we are asking the question, where is justice? To which God responds, I'm coming to restore what's good. Will you return to partnership and do it with me? For example, disseminating justice. Can we do this together? This is about so much more than money. It's about mercy and forgiveness and grace the gospel itself lies at the heart of these words, return to me. 
said, I will return to you. Do you care about the relationship that God intended for us to have? Can we be in partnership with him again? This is one of those teachings that I think no matter who you are, no matter how much you currently give, no matter how much you currently have, or as we like to say around here, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, this is a teaching that is met with just a deep sense of humility. When can I give enough? How much am I in need of receiving? How much forgiveness and mercy is in my account? The world is filled with so much need. There's so much injustice. Can the church step into this? Can partnership with God really do something here? And it leads us to something absolutely unbelievable. And if you're one of our ushers today, let me invite you forward and we can begin passing communion. Lest we fall into the trap of thinking like the folks in Malachi's day did that giving us something, that giving is something we do out of our own pocketbooks. If we keep in mind that all things really belong to God, it turns out this whole teaching can even be further flipped on its head. I like how Ambrose summed it up. You're not making a gift of your possession to a poor person. You're handing over to him what is his. Thank God when we read this, that we can see ourselves as the poor person to whom God says this body of Christ, this gift of Jesus, this is yours. This belongs to you. Jesus, right now, as we pass these gifts, this is just a reminder that he has been handed to you from the God of the universe, that it's something that you can hold and claim as your own. It is grace unmerited. It's a free gift. It's mercy. This is forgiveness. And as you receive this, remember him. Remember him not just as a mental exercise, but as a physical response to a physical gift. You were invited to this relationship with God through the act of participating in this tiny little meal. So consider before you receive this, do you need it? Who provides for you? And what is it that you need provided? Receiving this is not for those who are living this life of tithing or justice perfectly. It's not for those who fully understand it all the way. I want to be so clear on this, that receiving this is for those who confess their need for it and desire to learn this way and to live this way of caring for people and responding to God. Everyone can participate in this, but we do ask that you consider the gravity and the deep liberty and the joy that this represents. I invite you to hold it, and when we all have it, we'll receive this together.
On the night before he went to the cross, Jesus was sitting having a Passover supper with his friends and he took this piece of bread that represented the idea of redemption, of being bought back from slavery, of being taken out of a system that was unjust. And he broke it and he handed it to his friends and he, he said, do this. Every time you do this, remember, this is my body that's been broken for you. I am the one who's taking you out of this unjust system and placing you in a new kind of community. And right after they did that, he took this cup of wine, same thing, and he passed it around. He said, this is a new covenant. This is a new vow that I'm making. Will you partner with me? Can we do this together again? You don't have to do it perfectly. Judas is sitting in the room for crying out loud. But you got to care about it. you got to want it. You have to understand it perfectly. But what about this heart for remembering with your actions, remembering the vow, for anteing up once again to say, I want to be a part of this with you, God. For those that want to say yes to this, let's receive these elements together. God, yeah, I just, yeah, I pray for myself and I pray for my friends here, for the, for the folks who, like me, are struggling with it. Can I do this? Should I do this? I don't, I know me. I look me in the mirror every day. I know that I'm capable of such great betrayal. I don't think I can follow through. Thanks that you're the type of God that says, all you got to do is remember me. Thanks in receiving this. And I pray for those who have hesitated because they're unsure if they can keep their side of the bargain. And I pray for myself that I am reminded of grace, that you've got me, that you've got us, and that regardless of how well or how poorly that we do in keeping our commandment, that you say in Malachi 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you will never be destroyed. I am faithful to the end. Just keep coming home. Thanks for the invitation again today to come home. Give us the courage to live this way. We're going to take a time now as we do when we receive communion together to pray for the world around us, that justice would come everywhere. Today we get to pray for our global partners. So if you have one that you're, you're fond of, I just encourage you to pray for them for a minute. And if you're not sure who they are, you can pray for Nikki and Uli Dochi and our friends with Crew in Albania. Oh man, you can pray for Dan and Christy Rich and the sweet work that they're doing in Paraguay. You can pray for Bob and Susan Combs for the way that they're bringing justice to Compton. Yeah, or you can pray for our friends in Costa Rica and for the great work that they're doing in the communities there. Take a moment and pray now.
Yeah, God, thanks, thanks for these folks around the world. That when we receive communion, it's not just as individuals, not even just as a church, but man, it's just so broad, the table that you sit at on these days and the number of people that you eat with and the ways that you say my justice is everywhere. Thanks for the work that they're doing, for the ways that they've said yes to partnering with you, for the ways that they encourage us to, to see you more. And I pray for each one of us, myself included, and in the places where you're inviting us to have more courage to trust that the rest of the 90% will come in its due time, that you can be trusted. Give us a courage that allows us to then look at the first 10% and say, it is yours. It is for the sake of our community. It is for the sake of my own justice and forgiveness and mercy. I want to be a part of it. Thanks for this design that you have for your partnership with us. These vows are beautiful. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. For those who are able, let's stand and sing together.